0: So the theme of our time together this weekend is equanimity and awareness. So today I want to continue speaking about equanimity as balance, which includes the spaciousness and the calm. And equanimity is a deeper kind of calm. It comes from non-reactivity to whatever is going on. So yesterday, I spoke a lot about equanimity in terms of our daily lives. Um, How does it benefit us there? And today, I want to speak about equanimity in terms more of our meditative practice, more like times of intensive practice like this. I mean, even when we're at home, we're intensively doing the practice in this way. And this is... uh, a lot of balance, uh, deeper balance that we learn to establish in our practice here in meditation. I want to tell a story um, that brings us to equanimity around about. And um, it's about balancing the five spiritual faculties, actually which brings about equanimity, or that balance that we deep balance we need. Some years ago, when I was practicing in Burma, I entered the interview room to give my report. And sometimes uh, the teacher, Sayadaw Pandita, would ask a question as you're entering. And so you're You have time to ponder on that question a little bit as you slowly move into the room and do the bows to the teacher. And his question was, What is equanimity? What is equanimity? So just continuing to be mindful as walking in and then uh, finishing the bows and then answering the question. And I said, Equanimity is. A calmness of heart and mind, with a lot of clarity and spaciousness, non-reactivity, which was good enough. I mean, this, that time I remember, Pandita gave the response, "Hmm," which means that's pretty good. So <laughs> you have to read him well in order not to be discouraged sometimes. So his response was equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness or mindfulness. Behind are the first pair of horses, faith and wisdom. Behind that is the second pair of horses, concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, mindfulness, has little work, has little work. So with that, uh, those words, the lead horse, mindfulness, has little work. It connotes for me and experientially understanding that equanimity is easefulness. And of course, when there's no reactivity in the mind, the mind is more easeful. It's also more clear because you're not filtering th- things through that lens of equ- of reactivity. So I... It- The talk tonight uh, today is about these five cardinal virtues or five spiritual balancing faculties. They are uh, mindfulness and then faith and wisdom and then concentration and energy. I'd like to speak about them one at a time and also in pairs. All of these are active powers in and of themselves and we may notice them actually as we practice. Sometimes we'll notice the quality of concentration more, sometimes the energy, sometimes we'll see that the mind has some understanding about what's going on, the wisdom comes up. So it's, it's helpful to notice those very subtle experiences as well, sometimes the wholesome qualities aren't so noticeable, but they can be. So make sure you, you do take notice of them when they are there. All of these become stronger through moment to moment continuity of awareness. So if you're just mindful, it said that mindfulness can bring all of these about. And actually just being mindful helps all of Uh, these two pairs become balanced within that particular pair, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy. So in a way, all we have to do is be mindful. But sometimes we have to pay particular attention to where there is too much wisdom thinking in the mind, or there's too much energy or too much concentration. And um, then we know how to adjust. So each one of these has their own specific function to perform that harmonizes with the other faculties that then establishes more and more balance, deeper and balance that's needed for more complete comprehension for what's happening. They also coordinate or corral the other supportive faculties that are in the mind stream. Manindra used to say, Because like attracts like, one wholesome quality would attract other wholesome qualities of mind. And all these qualities I spoke of are wholesome qualities of mind. Faith, wisdom, concentration, energy, awareness itself. So we are in the practice of directing them through their ever deepening balance towards a possibility of deeper wisdom as we keep practicing. So the Buddha points out that neither he nor any one of us can bestow these qualities upon us. They are potentialities within each one of us waiting to be developed and nurtured. And these are the qualities they're nurtured by, headed off by mindful awareness. We nurture their growth by understanding how they work, as Steve and I've been talking about, how to keep them in balance, as I'll speak about today, and how to continually be mindfully aware of those qualities also. So don't forget to notice those when they're in the in the mind stream. Eventually, these five spiritual faculties turn into the five spiritual powers when they're fully developed. That's why you they have different um, titles sometimes of, of these five powers means they're fully developed. Faculties mean they're being developed. So I want to read the words of Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, many of you, or not all of you, know of this American Theravadan Buddhist monk. He translated and edited major works of the Buddhist teachings, including the commentaries. So quoting the Bodhi now, left to itself without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are the hindrances, the kilesas, the defilements. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters, but we are the passive pawns of habit, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our negative habit patterns. This is accomplished precisely by the development of the five spiritual faculties. So I love the bodhi or the fact that he doesn't pull any punches. He just says it like it is, which sometimes we need, you know, To we we just can't be babied the whole way along the path. So let's look at each factor one at a time briefly and how one naturally is a cause and condition for the next one to arise and then fill them more out in detail. So the first one is faith. In the three major areas, um, faith in in the teachings, uh, there's these three major areas, faith in the teachings, faith in the teachers, and faith in ourselves. And in those three major areas, faith in ourselves, I feel has been the most important for me to develop. Because faith brings forth the energy to put the steps into our path so that we can actually take the next step forward, and the next step, and the next step. There's some degree of confidence as we go forth, and we learn um, that we're gaining some benefit as we keep going, and we take that in, and we can take the ensuing steps. We need to have faith that we're being led in the right direction, though, of liberating insight. So it's, it's really good to uh, have faith in the teachings and in the teachers. So the second um, is energy. The second uh, spiritual function is energy or effort. This faith leads to the energy that we can take. If, if it weren't for this faith, we wouldn't even care to take a step but when we have some faith, we do take the steps towards this um, liberation, moment by moment. This effort and energy is a relaxed, sustainable effort. So sometimes in the West, we hear the word effort and it's like this huge oomphing power, but it isn't that in the Dhamma. In the Dhamma, it's this moment by moment, persevering, Gentle, persevering effort. Those, that combination of words came from Manindraji when I first learned this practice. He said, just gentle, persevering effort. And I always carried that with me. It was because of that gentle, persevering effort phrase that Manindra gave me. That enabled me to take the teachings from Upandita, who was very strict. And he was what we call the energy um, Sayadel, the Wirias Sayadal, because he was really, he was really strong in keeping up your energy. But it didn't always mean the striving that we do in the West, striving for a goal and too effortful, which can lead to giving up. So it's this gentle, persevering effort. That's the kind of effort and energy being spoken about here. When this persevering effort has continuity in a relaxed, sustainable way, then it can lead to mindful awareness. Then we can really be mindfully aware. When the mind is striving and tight around that uh, we don't even see that we're striving or that, you know, we're just trying to go for a goal. So we can't really be aware. It takes a relaxed, a more relaxed mind to be truly aware. And then this mind becomes powerful. So what this awareness or mindfulness is on in the Vipassana or insight meditation is on changing experiences, not on a chosen experience like in the beginning, like Steve um, offered us direction, it was on the breath over and over and over again. And this is to to develop some kind of stability of mind. And then opening to the changing experiences is turning the mind from more concentration practice to insight practice, to Vipassana practice. So when we open to all the four foundations of mindfulness, which we've begun to do, first of the body, now in the mind, then it changes to um, Vipassana, meaning that we're mindful of whatever is presented in the moment, whatever of the changing objects is discernible, in the foreground of the moment's experience. So even though this awareness is on changing experiences, we will notice that that continuity brings a very strong stability of mind. Many, if not all of you are very um, mature meditators and you'll notice that, you know, the mind can be on changing things and it's fine, no problem. Um, In fact, that's what the mind is supposed to do in order to deeply understand insight. So unless it goes to Vipassana meditation, it's only staying in developing concentration. When it can shift to changing experiences with ease, with the relative ease of equanimity being developed, Then you're in insight uh, concentration, the insight on changing experiences. And your practice is vipassana now. So I hope you can really understand that. Sometimes it takes a long time to understand that it's not just about being on the breath. So concentration on the continuity of changing objects brings about actually a very deep stability of mind. And that stability of mind comes because um, this awareness is more and more accompanied by equanimity, not, not being destabilized by a changing experience. So it steadies and unifies the mind's energy and can firmly stabilize it like a laser beam on the present moment. So that's a little bit more about awareness uh, through concentration. So the fourth spiritual faculty is concentration. And in this practice, it's concentration on changing objects. It brings us to the fifth uh, faculty, which is wisdom. And in the Dharma, wisdom is when the insights into a deeper level of life begin to arise. More deeply we begin to know the ultimate nature of reality. So you've heard uh, not from myself or Steve only but from other teachers and among yourselves when you speak of the ultimate nature of reality and these three characteristics of um, understanding deeply through experience Uh, Anicca or the uh, swiftly changing experience of all phenomena and then Anatta to see that in that swiftly changing experience there is no core, there's nothing solid, there's nothing that can be pointed to as me or mine. That is understood experientially, not cognitively experientially through impermanence a lot through how things are so insubstantial and floating by so that is the second um, ultimate reality and the third one is the understanding of anatta or the not self characteristic just seen um, oh that's that's the second one anatta and the third one is dukkha, seen through the fact that whatever is arising and passing away cannot be held on to. So the mind intuitively, deeply, and experientially understands that there's nothing that's going to have complete and utter and permanent satisfaction. It's always moving along. So it's, it's just the simplicity of that. And by experience, the mind just starts to imbibe that, live with those insights. Sometimes you don't have to even have a lot of Dharma talks in your mind about it. It's just happening through experience. And that's the best way, actually, because it's really deeply understood. So from this wisdom, the cycle deepens and faith arises more. Because you start living with this wisdom and aligning one's own inner attitude with the way things are, that deep wisdom. So the mind realizes that and then has faith in the practice. It keeps going because of that faith. Faith is experiential knowledge of wisdom. So then it has more energy to do what needs to be done. And that more energy is a kindling for mindful awareness to keep arising in a sustainable way. And that mindful awareness on moment-to-moment experiences brings concentration or stability of mind on changing objects, not on the same thing, changing objects. And that opens up more and more wisdom, more and more insights to experience life in a profoundly liberating way and so this is the cultivation of liberation moment by moment all of this leads to a greater cycle and when faith and wisdom are in balance energy and concentration are in balance then it makes the work of the lead horse in terms of the five horses um, carrying pulling the chariot It makes the work of mindfulness effortless. Some of you in practice have talked about that. Um, Some of you personally, I've heard say mindfulness is there. It's like I can't get rid of it. It's just coming up, whether I like it or not, you know, and even kind of uh, lighting up states of mind that are hard to look at. But, you know, mindfulness just lights it up and this is because of the continuity mindfulness is arising on its own in all of these functions that are happening in the mind that are strengthening that mindfulness so this is a very profound experiential establishment of that balance of equanimity on this deeper level so just like to talk about those qualities a little more fully um, some review of, for example, faith. Uh, faith provides uh, the inspiration so that we can muster forth the intention or to uh, to have the energy to open to something greater than what we know already. Um, usually we become complacent or we can become complacent with what we already know. And it's always growing, it's always growing. Love, Manindras, as I'm repeating again, my path is not yet finished. And that was kind of like an attitude of willing to see something more, you know, and willing to grow deeper in the qualities that are needed, willing to open more to the defilements that may still be there, even in, in subtle ways. So faith plants plants a seed for confidence to get stronger in our hearts so that even when very difficult um, places arrive in our practice, there are at least two or three rolling up the mat places in our, you know, long term practice. I'm sure all of you in one way or another can uh, hearken back to places in your practice where you say, I'm done. I'm just I'm getting out of here, I'm going to go have a cup of coffee or tea right now, or something like that. And most of the time, we don't leave the retreat, but sometimes we have. And that's when we don't have enough faith in ourselves to keep going. So what is faith anyway? There are, I love these numbers, because it keeps us on track in Dharma talks. There are three kinds of faith. There's blind faith, There's bright faith, and there's verified faith, which which brings us to unshakable faith. But I'll talk about these three kinds of faith here. Blind faith first. Blind faith is when we are involved in a path of practice because basically we're following others. And we might hearken back to times in our lives when it was like that, you know, when we realized looks like this this path helped someone else or maybe something about it brought us to the path. And we just keep staying in it because of Sangha, really, you know, the, the power of Sangha, of community that just keeps us going, which is beautiful also. But it takes a while before we really check it out for ourselves, where we're really seeing hey, what's this next part that maybe I haven't ever experienced before? Or maybe I'll really open to that really unpleasant part of what's still going on in my heart that I haven't opened to yet. Maybe I'm going to do that this lifetime. So we start checking it out for ourselves. There's a famous teaching I'm sure all of you know, Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha advised those who were confused about how to follow the teachings, how to find out for themselves. And the Buddha answered, I'm just going to say it in short, we need to try it out for ourselves. We need to see for ourselves what's leading to happiness and harmony in our own hearts and also in the hearts of others, harmony for others. And if that is what the practice is doing, then continue on. And to know for ourselves what's leading to disharmony, what's leading to harm, harm for our own karmic stream, harm for others in any way, then don't follow that path, then turn away from that. So the, the Buddha was answering the question, who do I follow? What teachers do I follow? And even for himself, he said that if you're finding that out about this teaching, that this particular teacher is giving, then don't follow that path. So this is blind faith when we're just following others um, and we're not really trying it out for ourselves. All of you uh, are past that stage. (laughs) Um, I'm guessing I'm hoping and that you're finding ways, uh, your own, you know, on your own path where you may have to make these stop and, you know, take this in and go again, or you might have to go this way instead of that way, finding out for yourselves. So the next kind of faith is bright faith, is when we're inspired by a teaching or a person or a place, or we're opened up by some reading or some compassion that happens in our own hearts for the suffering in the world. And that bright faith kind of leads us forth. And um, it's the inspiration that keeps us onward on our path, where we're able to walk the path even when it's very difficult. So for me, a lot of that when I hearken back, back, I see that it, it it was things that I was told in the stories about, say, for example, Deepama. Ma. Um, she was a householder, a mother of children, even one child that died, a husband that passed away, uh, and all the suffering she went through. Um, and her, her faith in the Buddha and the Dharma, the Sangha was so strong that She was able to go through her own hearts, her own heartbreaks in life and um, live through that times when she couldn't get out of bed long periods of time. And I mean, I sometimes couldn't get out of bed, but I did, (laughs) you know, um, to get up and do what I needed to do for the children or my life. And so, as I learned more about her and heard more stories, it's as though she became really close to me uh, in my life. So that was one person who brought out bright faith along with the teachers who taught me during that time. She was the one woman in my life. I've been inspired by other um, beings on my path being a in the Catholic tradition, but Deepama was the one in, in this tradition. She had immense wisdom and she had immense love. And one time I, uh, heard from some person who was saying something about, um, only a male can achieve Buddhahood. And she spoke up right away and said, uh, I can do that, too. So it was like, yeah, that's that's my mentor <laughs> right there. Not that I want to achieve Buddhahood, but, uh, you know, I'd like to be fully purified of all the defilements. So that was a very bright faith to me. And then there's verified faith. When we practice for ourselves, we follow the Eightfold Noble Path, we open to the very difficult insights that we open to, begin to see for ourselves and see that there's lessened ignorance, there's lessened delusion, there's lessened greed, there's lessened hatred, there's more times of gratitude, there's more times of letting go in our lives. Just if you ponder on that, you'll see that your faith is verified. You wouldn't be here if your faith at at this very retreat, if your faith hadn't been verified along the way, in some deeper ways, not just depending on others to keep your faith going, but you see it for yourself. I see this verified faith um, as devotion for me. It's not so much for me, uh, and it's different for every one of us, so not to let my Whatever mine is, you know, lead the way for you. But maybe you find your own way. How is your faith verified? Mine is verified as my, it's my devotion to a lessening of greed, hatred, and delusion. And I, you know, it's really more in in terms of the Dharma that I have faith. And of course, the Buddha, you know, my spiritual ancestor who brought this out of course, I have great reverence there, but I wasn't born with that. You know, I wasn't born in, into that uh, spiritual practice. I had to learn that. So it's closer to the learning of the Dharma and the um, actualizing it in my own heart. And so the Sangha is very, very important to me also, but it's this devotion. I feel the devotion to practice devotion uh, to all facets of it, including the Buddha, the Dharma, but to my own practice in life. Not to a person or not depending on others, but to what I can do for myself. So faith steers the mind away from doubt, and it destabilizes and disempowers the intentions that make us give up on ourselves. It destabilizes that. And when doubt arises, um, I've learned to see it as it's just a cloud of doubt. It's usually doubt in myself. Actually, to tell you the truth, it's never doubt in the Buddha's teachings. It's never doubt in the power of the Sangha around me. It's usually doubt that, oh, can I get through this now? You know, and I have snippets of that every single day, you know, just to be human, along with all of you, snippets of that every single day, you know, a moment of like, fool, am I going to get through this? And yeah, it's just a moment. Faith keeps an eye on our highest aspirations, but knows it must take one step at a time in that direction. So there's faith there and there's that wisdom that knows it's one step at a time. So I love this quote by Rene Dumal from Mount Analog, that book, the first step depends on the last, our intention to get there, whether it's high up or deep and the last step depends on the first. So it just, to me, it's always taking that first step. Um, Martin Luther King, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. So some of you've heard my stories about uh, walking on the Camino. So I I did walk the Camino, parts of the Camino two times. And uh, I walked the second time because I didn't see as much the first time. I was, I was going through something so difficult the first time that I, my head was down. Like my partner on the path was a nun, um, Sister Viranyani. And she said, you, you, had this, um, you had this Camino look on your face all the time and just looking down and taking the next step, taking the next step. She reminds me of that nowadays when we're on a walk. you got that Camino look again. You know, when I'm just kind of slogging through. So, but I know it's just a moment of doubt. And with faith, we don't get paralyzed by it. It brings us to knowing what our devotion is, devotion to our path of practice. So there are a lot of gems of wisdom that we garner along the way, you know, as we're realizing this lack of faith, it brings up, you know, where we need to be stronger, and we get through that. So there's a lot of wisdom that can come up the opposite of faith, just by being with times when we we can't pull it forth, but we do. So if this is sustainable in that continuity of awareness that it keeps us in this faith to one step at a time, it brings us to the next factor, which is effort. So effort, energy, and it's not so much this physical exertion, but it's more continuity of awareness. Sometimes we need to take a break, right? It's not just not to see yourself as like, um, This same pace every day, you know, just plodding forth every day, that relaxed, uh, persevering awareness. Sometimes it's the kind of perseverance where you need to sit down and just maybe do some sitting meditation, or you need to do some drinking tea meditation, and then go forth. Or maybe your practice has to be more general awareness rather than precise awareness. So you know what to do in order to keep it consistent, in order to keep it continuous. You're not going along, so to say, on the same pace all the time. You're gonna take breaks sometimes. You're gonna get horizontal sometimes and take a rest. But continue your mindfulness as much as you can. Even when you go to general mindfulness, like just hearing, just seeing, just feeling the whole body, it's still mindful awareness. If you can keep that up, then when it needs to be more penetrative and precise, it can go there. So this is continuity of awareness. That's the energy that we're keeping the thread of mindful awareness electrified by continuity in different ways that we do that to keep it sustainable so when for example even in everyday life when my friend would say kamala you have that kamina look kamina look on you like i'm really trying to get through this and just lighten up a little bit you know to Keep going, for example. So one time when I was faltering and giving up in practice, I thought about this sutta, which I pulled up to, to quote to you about someone who asked the Buddha for some advice. And um, let's see, I'll, I don't have where this comes from here, but when I send it to you, I'll have where it comes from in the suttas. So this person was asking the Buddha, how, dear sir, did you cross the flood? This is crossing the flood of the defilements. And the answer was from the Buddha, by not stopping or halting friend, and by not straining, I cross the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and not straining, I cross the flood. So you could see that it, it takes the middle path. Where is the middle path for you? It's not by just giving up and, and taking, rolling up your mat and leaving the retreat. It's like, where's the middle path here for me in the moment? So you don't sink or you don't get swept away. Uteshaniya, one of our teachers say, this is not a hundred yard dash. This is more like a marathon that we're in on. Could be multi-lifetime too. So virya is the word in Pali and it means effort or energy. And uh, one of the teachers, Utejaniya, also says, this spiritual faculty is combining patience as well as perseverance, bringing those two together. So faith and effort, energy, and now there's the spiritual faculty of mindfulness. I um, filled that out a little more in the beginning. Now a few more things about it since it's part of our theme here also. In Pali, the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. So I'd like to fill out some descriptions about this word in Pali, sati, S-A-T-I. This comes from the Abhidhamma, which is the um, Buddhist psychology. Abhidhamma means a higher dhamma. And uh, sati actually is described as to remember to remember. And what is it remembering? It's remembering the present moment, what's in the present moment. So what that implies is, it's not thinking about the past. It's not going into the future of what will be or what you're planning to be. How can But I want to stop here and say, when one is thinking about the past, being in the present moment, there would be remembering one one is thinking about the future being in the present moment there would be planning or futurizing and so that's what how you can see that okay you're stabilizing in the present moment so we're not getting lost in the past nor in the future it's just this direct experience of the present moment in mindfulness, this kind of practice we're doing, we're in the training of letting go of the con, the content of whatever our thoughts are. And we're training to let it go for now. In this training, in deep training, this is what we do. We, le- we train in being able to not go into the content all the time, but when we're in daily life, We can go into the content, of course. But we absolutely need this training to let go of the content or else it's just being in content all the time and not learning to let go enough so that we can see more deeply. So in this kind of practice, we need to see more deeply. When we go into life, we can fill out all of our thinking. So I just wanted to answer something that was brought out earlier so that it's not wrong to open up to the content. We, t- we can do that every day. We can know thinking and then just think about it. You know, go ahead and fill it out. But in practice, we need this kind of training to not get carried away and lost in the stream of thinking where we're, there's mostly not even knowing what we're thinking. So letting go is very important in intensive practice like this, being able to not get lost in the past or in the future. That's why it's so important. It reflects the truth of how it is in the moment when we can just be with the moment of thinking, what do we learn there? I mean... Yeah, not that we're just thinking that's so ordinary and shallow, but what is what is being learned when we um, bring mindfulness to the moment of thinking and really just see that moment deeply is that it disappears. I mean, it's so it's so utterly simple. But when that happens after time and time again, it finally dawns on the mind that here is one thing. Of all the five aggregates, of all the four foundations of mindfulness and the six sense doors, all of these are always completely disappearing all the time. Arising, changing, disappearing. That is what the mind needs to grok over and over and over again until it really penetrates that, that characteristic. So until it does so, it's just all heady, until it does so on a very deep level, which we're getting over and over and over again if you follow the instructions. Um, so what, the, what mindfulness is reflecting, it reflects like a mirror, is the truth of those three characteristics over and over again. You're all a mature group of, un, of meditators, I believe, Um, And so you, we, we can go there right away with it. We don't have to take the baby steps. This is what you're learning in the practice. And if you keep following the simple instructions, your mind will get there. Sometimes people ask me, what did you do to get to your, (laughs) to wherever you are in your practice? My stock answer is I followed instructions, (laughs) I just kept it simple all the time, and uh, and what came up very automatically were actually all those insights. They did I went in with a mind of like just a young person, and uh, I, I didn't know the Dharma very much at all. I didn't read very much at all, and all those insights came very easily. And then it got filled in by the Dharma later on. So this is from Chuang Tzu, um, a fourth century Taoist Chinese. And um, he said very succinctly, and when answering, what is the mind like? The mind is like a mirror, it grasps nothing, it refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep, it does not hold on to anything. So your mind is able to see that moment after moment after moment. It's just like a mirror. That's how mindfulness is. Whenever something pleasant arises, it doesn't go out to hold on grasp onto it, and keep it. It doesn't uh, push back at it if it's unpleasant. It just Simply is there seeing it moment by moment by moment. And this happens a lot because of the non reactivity of equanimity that's also accompanying mindfulness. So, mindfulness's function is to remember to recognize the present moment, just the present moment, not all the reasoning behind it or where it came from or how much you know. Don't give yourself a Dharma talk. Just know the present moment as it is. The proximate cause for the present moment is the strong arising of perception. And how does that happen? Perception of the four foundations of mindfulness. How does that happen? Because the mind isn't diffused or diffuse into something else. It's just seeing that moment. And it helps to note. That's why... You can say, or I can see that that was implied in the um, teachings of the Buddha, of the Satipatthana Sutta. You know, that this is a moment of then in the Satipatthana Sutta, it was named. This is a moment of the hindrances arising or the seven factors arising. So that gives me permission to name it. It's not just coming from Sayadaw. from Mahasi Sayadaw, this noting practice, it's coming from there too, gives me permission to name it. Oh, this is uh, awareness. Oh, this is uh, the quality of joy. This is a quality of compassion. This is the quality of aversion. So naming it, what does naming it do? It takes the mind from being diffuse to like This is where I'm putting the mind right here, right now. And it it really kind of unifies the mind and the body to write this moment. It's not a sentence. It's not a whole Dharma talk. It's one little word of noting what's happening. This is rising and what is being felt there. This is falling and then knowing what is felt there. So um, not to get... Uh, carried away with that, it's going to carry you into some um, long thought about it. Sometimes when I would um, say there was a, the very first time I went to my teacher up and said, I, there's no, it's not possible to note, to bring up a word. And he says, Oh, just notice, like, you don't have to note all the time. But sometimes when the mind gets lazy, and that's not a good word in the West, but it's a word that really woke me up when I would hear it from the teacher. When your mind gets lazy, then bring about clear perception. Because clear perception is a proximate cause for strong mindfulness to arise. Clear perception. So mindfulness is also like a stone placed in a still pond of water. That's one of the, in one of the, um, this is from the Vasudhi the path of purification, describes mindfulness is like a stone that's placed on still pond of water. It doesn't stay there, it sinks to the bottom. And as it sinks to the bottom, it perceives layers. It perceives the, that perceives the depth of experience, not just on the surface, not just like, th- if you notice, thinking on the surface would be the details of that thinking, the, the content of that thinking. But when it sinks to in into that moment, it starts to see how it's always changing and how that moment is disappearing. And uh, it, it, it starts seeing one of the characteristics, you know, if that thinking is pleasant, it's in that say that thinking disappears, maybe the characteristic of dukkha comes up because it's it's gone. We can't hold on to some thinking that's pleasant even. It's just gone. So the understanding of unsatisfactoriness becomes very, very deep in one's heart. It isn't like some dharma talk. It's like understanding it. Wow, can't hold on to that unpleasantness. And then it starts to live more in the reality of life. So it's not like a cork that floats on the surface. Um, So in our practice, we're guided to experience more deeply than conceptual knowledge. Um, So we're we're not, that's why in this practice, when it's called um, insight practice on this kind of intensive level where we're just you know, going back to the quietness and stillness and even in the walking meditation, keeping it continuous, we're not staying on the conceptual level of things. Concepts are really beautiful, wise, good, but we're bringing it on the preconceptual level over and over again to see these three characteristics of all phenomena. So this is um the... Uh, mindfulness part of faith, then there's energy effort, and then mindfulness. Now just very shortly on this fourth faculty, which is concentration. I've been mentioning it over and over again, that concentration in the practice of vipassana is concentration on changing objects. So it brings about the stability of mind because it can go from rising, falling, thinking, thinking, hearing, hearing, tasting, tasting, hearing, hearing, seeing, seeing, thinking, 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 you know, more on thinking, it just can go from one thing to another very, very easily, no problem. And it's just this mindfulness doing its thing. And then every once in a while, it gets very, very subtle, and it notices Awareness notices another moment of awareness, more subtle experiences. Awareness might notice calm, concentration, and notices more refined experiences like equanimity itself. So when that continuity comes, it brings about that laser beam, very strong understanding of what's going on beneath the surface of things in a moment to moment way. So it develops this this last faculty, uh, which is liberating wisdom. This uh, wisdom is very different from concentration or calm. A lot of times we come into practice, if you can think back to early years of your practice, you might have been thinking, well, you know, the, the, trajectory. And the goal of practice is just to be kind of sitting here very calm, or just always calm in one's life. And um, that's how it that's what I'm searching for. Well, that's fine in the beginning, because that's one of the things that the mind comes to is some kind of calm. But actually, that's pretty shallow. It, It has it's much more than that much, much more than that. It's this kind of wisdom liberates the mind from suffering, because it starts to understand more deeply, as I've been mentioning all along, wow, what happens is things arise, they change, and they go away. And yeah, we can say that that's true. Uh, You know, stop somebody in the street, and they'll say that easily. But when you realize it that deeply, your mind starts seeing life so differently. It can see it can see the ability for it to let go of all the layers of greed, hatred, and delusion. That starts to purify the mind when you see it that way, see, purify all the roots of that in the mind, where what becomes more lighted up in the mind, are the beautiful qualities of the mind. And many of you are noticing that already. You know, noticing more beautiful qualities that come up in your life. Just your ability to be more compassionate, let go more easily, to give, to, to give to others in a way that helps others to harmonize more in life, to be strong carriers of the, the dharma in, in daily life. And so these things are more apparent to us. And um, we know that we've there's been some liberation in the mind. And it can go further into having a mind that's completely pure of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the Vipassana develops this liberating wisdom bit by bit by bit so that we know for ourselves that We're on the right path. And as we keep developing this purification of the mind, um, we look back on our practice and say like, when somebody asks the Dalai Lama, have you made any progress? And uh, one time the Dalai Lama says, one year ago, if I think, no, not much, if I think in one year, five years, some, 10 years, yes. 20 years, yes. Something like he went as he took a greater amount of time and looked back and said, Yes, I can see that the mind has made more progress, meaning purification of those qualities and more amplification of the beautiful qualities of mind. So, in pairs, <clears throat> when faith and wisdom are in balance with one another, there is much more understanding. It's not just leaning on blind faith, but developing the wisdom that knows you can keep on the path. And maybe this wisdom comes forth as some thinking sometimes. I want to acknowledge that as some thinking sometimes about that wisdom of a Nietzsche or Dukkha or Anatta. And it, it sort of perseverates around there for a while. And that's fine. But even in practice, when I practice for a long time and I start having. Um, uh, perhaps a deeper understanding of something. And I'll start saying to the teacher, this is what I understood about that. This is what I understood about that. And one time my teacher said back to me, and actually this was the very time I said, I understand the mind to have those qualities of the, you know, hardness, softness, and all of those qualities like um, of, of the body So through the translator, Upandita said, if you continue in this way, you will go backwards. And it meant that I just would kept thinking about it instead of doing my practice. And then, of course, thinking, oh, what a wonderful yogi I am and (laughs) all of that, you know. But just like in practice, when we are practicing this, we need to just even let go of that and um, not get too much around the cognitive around it, but just stay with the experiential. When energy and concentration are out of balance, we need to know that, you know, when we're striving too hard, these are the two pairs, the other two pairs of horses. When concentration is too much, we'll get too sleepy, you know, and and this is when we kind of sink into what's pleasant. We wanna concentrate on the pleasant so much but we're not bringing energy to it. So just knowing what what needs to be done in the moment to kind of um, balance us out. So there's more about the wisdom part. There's relative wisdom and there's absolute wisdom. On the relative level, wisdom is living in deep harmony with all of life where one's highest values of not harming are always in our words, in our behavior, in our thoughts and in our intentions. And we see that wisdom is developing when there's a gradual weakening of the habitual forces that cause harm. So if you look back on your own life, you'll see that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, that the precepts didn't mean as much to you, pr- probably as they do today where you're just much more careful or even if you're in the practice five years, you'll notice that. And what, what then is happening is that we're living in alignment with our highest noble aspirations of life to not one of them is not to harm. Of course, very important as a level of wisdom in our life. That's that is very high wisdom in our life to follow the precepts of not harming. And then on an absolute level, wisdom is the deepening experience of anicca, dukkha and anatta of impermanence and of um, uh, the unsatisfactory nature of all of life, and also of the empty nature of it. You know, those are two hard things to understand if I just say those words. But you know them by experience, not just by the words and why they are so important in life, so we don't hang on so much, you know, and also um, that we live with those two levels of wisdom in life together, that we understand the fullness of life and how we are to be in life following the precepts of non-harming, understanding and also understanding where we cause harm and refrain. But we're also living with a deeper wisdom that causes us to be on this path um, of letting go of the deep defilements, of the hindrances that keep us bound in this level of samsara, in this uh, level of suffering, to be more and more freed from that. So both of those relative and absolute need to be held together, not like one is more important than the other. They're both equally important. Sometimes if you hear the question to um, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, what's the most important thing? Sometimes he would say the understanding of karma. And also, you know, liberation is important, but in daily life, that's so really important. Um, let me see, something else is coming up to, to um, wrap this up here about living with these two levels of life. Um, first, I want to say from Ayakema, one of my teachers long ago. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person when one practices these faculties. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. And so um, this one that just came to me now, <clears throat> which is a guide in my life, is from uh, the Tibetan tradition, Padma Padmasambhava, who said, Though my mind is as vast as the sky, my attention to the details of cause and effect are like fine barley flour. So paying attention to the laws of cause and effect, but also knowing what's beyond that. Okay, so may you go forth with some bits of wisdom to carry you on your path. And we'll be back in, at, on the hour. Um, so that's about 50 minutes from now. Thank you. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. <laughs> We're all in- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.